Hey to all you fish enthusiasts out there. Whether you're an avid angler or just curious about fish, we'd like to welcome you to Fish of the Week. It's Monday, March 22nd, 2021, and we're excited to talk about all the fish. I'm Katrina Liebick with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service in Alaska. And I'm Guy Yero, and I am so, so ready for our vacation. That's right. As much as we love Alaska, it's still pretty cold up here, so we've decided to head south for a little spring break getaway. Guy, you want to tell them where we're going? We are going to Louisiana. We've got so much planned, we've decided to make it a special two-part episode. I'm just a really excited podcast co-host. I hope you can hear it in my voice. I'm excited because this week's fish is an absolute superstar. One of my all-time favorite species from one of the most charismatic groups of fishes there is. We are talking alligator gar, folks. And joining us for today's discussion, all the way from Nickel State University in Thibodeau, Louisiana, the gar guy, Solomon David. How are you doing today? Doing great, Guy and Katrina. Thanks for having me. So I'm curious, how did you get started in gar and how did you first learn about them? For me, I was always interested in dinosaurs as a kid. So, you know, if you think about prehistoric animals, of course, dinosaurs come to mind, but gars have been around since the late Jurassic period. So when I first saw gar, and this actually happened when I opened up a magazine of uh, Ranger Rick, which is a kid's nature magazine that uh, National Wildlife Federation puts out. I was about 11 years old, flipped to the middle of one, saw this fish that looked like an alligator with fins instead of legs. It had this really primitive ancient look to it. And I thought, wow, this is really cool. And uh, it turns out it was an alligator gar. And I read up everything I could about that uh, fish and that group of fish. And it really just kind of captivated my uh, attention and imagination during that time. And uh, luckily, I was able to cycle back by the time I got into grad school and was able to study gars for my uh, master's and dissertation research. And now I'm, you know, uh, lucky to be working in a PI for gar lab down here at Nichols State University. So it's, it's kind of neat to be chasing my uh, childhood fish fascination. When was the first, can, can you remember the first time that you actually came across what you might consider like a mega gar, like a <laughs> gar that was so massive that you kind of, your jaw dropped? Is that sure. something that's still in your memory? Yeah, yeah. Oh, definitely. When I was a graduate student at University of Michigan, I uh, came down to New Orleans for a conference that was about GAR. Dr. Elise Ferraro was uh, putting together that symposium. And uh, at the end of the symposium, so I was excited just to meet a bunch of people that were studying GAR. U.S. Fish and Wildlife down here, Louisiana Department of uh, Wildlife and Fisheries. There, A lot of uh, agency folks were down here talking about GAR. And at the end of the conference, uh, Dr. Ferrara and her grad students told me like, hey, we're heading back to Thibodeau, but we're going to be doing some field work. Would you be interested in joining? And I said, uh, well, I got to get, you know, on a flight, you know, back. And so I don't know if I can actually do that. Like, I'm like, what are you guys going to be doing? They said, well, we're actually going to be sampling for alligator gar. And I was like, what? And so I quickly got on the computer, changed my flight and uh, made sure I could be a part of that. And, uh, you know, we went out in January. It was January 2009. And uh, um, they said, well, we're not sure if we're actually going to get any gator gars. It's a little bit early in the season. But uh, I was like, I felt like me and this other guy who was down there from Canada. So we were like, we were the northern gar guys down there. And uh, we kind of like willed them to be caught. We're like, we need to see these alligator gars. And sure enough, um, we got, I want to say it was just under five feet long. And so I got a picture with that fish, which we brought back for some research where they were spawning them for other uh, research purposes. But man, seeing an alligator gar for the first time in the wild, like, I mean, that's definitely just imprinted on my memory. And that was, that was 2009. And it was at this small university in Southeastern Louisiana called Nickel State. 
And, uh, you know, as of 2017, a job opportunity came up and uh, now I'm down here working on GAR alongside Dr. Ferrara and other researchers here. So it's, it's been a great opportunity. But yeah, that first time in the wild was, uh, um, was really cool. So how many different GAR do we have here in the U.S.? And yeah, where are they found? So they're nothing like, you know, cyprinids or now I guess they're leucicids, right? The minnows and the shiners, uh, they're not quite as diverse as that group. There's only seven extant species of GARs. Um, alive today. There used to be more during, you know, uh, sort of uh, earlier in the fossil record. And they're found from southern Canada all the way down to Costa Rica, mainly on the eastern half of the U.S. They used to have a range that uh, spanned into Africa, Asia, into Europe. So they used to have what we call a Pangaic distribution. But now present day gars are just found in North America and Central America. So if we're going to talk about alligator gar, um, I mean, people can use their imagination in terms of what inspired their name, but we'd love if you just elaborate a little bit more on that species so folks can get a visual, like how big are they, you know, just what do they look like? Sure. Um, so alligator gar is the largest species of the seven gar species alive today. As far as I know, it's actually considered to be the largest species that we know of out of anyone in the gar family. So even compared to fossil gars, alligator gar is oh, wow. the biggest. They can get easily up to eight feet long. Uh, supposedly they can get to nine feet long, maybe close to 10 feet long. Historically, we don't have great records of that. And they can weigh over 300 pounds. So these are, you know, pretty large fish. As far as what they look like, alligator gar gets its name from alligators. They, they look like an alligator with fins instead of legs. They've got a relatively long snout compared to, you know, what you might think of typically for a fish, if you're looking at like a salmon or a trout, mm -hmm. and it's kind of flat and broad like an alligator's. Now, I oftentimes describe them as an alligator with fins instead of legs, but gars have actually been around for a longer time than alligators. So I think we should be mm -hmm. calling alligators they're actually gars with legs instead of fins. Nice. You know, we want to be fair <laughs> to who came first. But uh, yeah, I think that's the, the, the best description there. And they've got these diamond-shaped armored scales cover the entire body. Their face is extremely bony and they've got lots of teeth. And if you look at a gar, you look at that long snout filled with uh, lots of sharp conical teeth. And uh, you know, I think that's what kind of stands out to people when they first see a gar. Some of the things that make them successful is that they're air breathers. So not a lot of fish breathe air, more fish than we think, or you might think breathe air, but uh, that is maybe not the most common trait across fish. So that allows them to persist in environments where maybe more conventionally respiring fish uh, can't uh, do as well. They've got these armor plated scales. Their uh, scales are called ganoid scales. They're made up of a material very similar to enamel on our teeth. So, Dang. I mean, they are, they're coming in with the, with the garmer, as we like to call it. And some of them grow to decent size. Uh, most of them, by the time they're adults, the only major predators they have um, are humans, maybe alligators or really large uh, water birds. So I think all of those in combination have uh, contributed to them being successful for a long time, for, you know, over 150 million years. That is crazy. I'm curious. Gar has these wicked scales. Can you tell us more about those? What are the advantages and disadvantages? That kind of thing. So I would say, you know, one of the distinct advantages is that they're they're very armored. So they're, you know, not quite impenetrable, but they're, you know, very difficult to get through if you're a predator. So oftentimes, um, let's say if an alligator is going to feed on a gar, they can definitely smash the head or they can, you know, swallow the fish whole. But it is pretty hard to get through that uh, relatively tough hide. And they're interlocking scales as well. So it almost works like chain mail. Now, 
with that comes a little bit of a less, uh, less flexibility compared to your tenoid or your cycloid scale. So they may not be able to turn on a dime, but GARs are much more flexible than we give them credit for. So they can do a little sort of S-curve or C-shaped bend to them. Maybe not the same as, uh, you know, American eel or, again, like a trout or a salmon, but uh, they're, they're pretty mobile for, you know, even though they've got those uh, heavily armored scales. They've got a lot of other characteristics like poisonous eggs, which probably help with uh, predation when they're at, uh, you know, those early stages. What about these eggs makes them poisonous and why is it unique to the gar? The short answer is we don't know exactly what makes them poisonous. So Dr. Gary LeFleur down here at Nickel State, um, his lab has been looking at the gar eggs and trying to determine the specifics of their toxicity. And I think a recent study that just came out in 2020, I can't remember where those folks were out of, but I think they determined it might be a particular phospholipid, but we don't know. We don't know if it's, you know, bacterial based or, you know, if the fish is actually producing it, which is actually extremely rare um, mm -hmm. for the, the organism itself to be producing that. But what else is unusual about it is like, so Bofin, you know, they've got eggs that are edible and they're the closest relatives to GARs, even though they're still separated by, you know, quite a decent chunk of time between divergence of those two groups. But what's also interesting about GAR egg toxicity is that it's toxic to mammals and it's toxic to birds and it's toxic to invertebrates, but it's not toxic to other fish. Um, huh. and apparently to some reptiles too. So, you know, you would think that if your eggs are going to be toxic, why not have it be toxic to, you know, the animals you're sharing the, the you know, the, the area with, but gars spawn in relatively shallow water and that shallow water is going to be extremely warm. So our working hypothesis is that you're not going to find those conventionally respiring fish there, like your bluegill or other maybe egg predators, but you do find crustacean predators like crawfish. We say crawfish go down here in the South. It's crayfish everywhere else, right? Um, and then you've also got your water birds. And so we think that maybe that's how that toxicity might have evolved. So it actually prevents the predators that are in that general vicinity. But yeah, as far as, you know, humans, we're mammals, don't eat gar eggs, you're going to get violently ill. Dang, that's a really cool adaptation. I mean, and that's some, I mean, they're so old that, I mean, that's just a, that's a really, really cool adaptation. Now, usually, this is the part where I jump in with a little tip to help y'all fish safely. But since we're in Dr. David's house, I'm going to let him take this one. Solomon, how should the folks at home prepare to fish in Louisiana? And I think, you know, make sure you got your, you know, your permits and your fishing license and you're following the, the boating regulations. Right now, we're getting into floodplain inundation stages where the river might be getting higher, unexpectedly higher. So just be wary of what the, the water depths are because that can change from week to week. We were supposed to go out and do field work uh, this coming Friday, but the river went six feet more than we thought it was going to be going. And so we're kind of pushing that back. So we're in that time of year where water levels can fluctuate greatly. So I would say keep tabs on that. Your access and getting on and off uh, particular areas of a lake might be more difficult. So I'd say keep tabs on that stuff. So like a lot of fish, alligator gar faced some conservation challenges, with one being how they've been maybe perceived through history as well as some habitat issues. Can you talk a little bit more about what challenges gar face? Sure. So I think, uh, you know, you've got the, the public perception of gars, which is a reputation a lot of us have been working to improve. But one of the big threats is definitely habitat loss. So as we've dammed rivers and levied certain sections of floodplains and, you know, started modifying how rivers and streams and other, you know, uh, water bodies work, 
we've cut off gars from their, you know, spawning areas and that has caused issues with populations. So like, just like with paddlefish, sturgeon, other migratory fishes that need access to floodplains or need access to um, spawning grounds. So I think that's a plight of a lot of freshwater fishes. And there's this idea that they eat game fish or they eat all the young of the year fish of the fish that we want to catch. And in most cases, that's just not true. Gars are predators. They add balance to a given ecosystem and they're going to eat whatever's most abundant. So in many cases, it's fish like shad and other forage fish. In some cases, it is panfish or game fish. But if that's what's most abundant in the system, you need predators there to maintain balance within a given fish community or broader ecosystem. And yeah. so I think that's lent itself to the, the poor reputation of gars. Now, I say they've had a historically bad reputation, but really if you go further back in time, Native Americans and other indigenous people used to, you know, they ate gar, they still eat gar, they make jewelry and arrowheads out of the hides. They were, you know, much more highly utilized. And then when we think about more of a colonial perspective, it's it's different fish took, uh, you know, kind of a higher value ranking. Um, yeah. So I think it's a matter of perspective with how gars have been treated over the years. And now we're trying to improve that reputation, showing that they have value as a food fish, as bringing balance to ecosystems, and even recently showing that they have value for genomics work and potentially biomedical research. Oh, interesting. You were mentioning that dams and uh, hydrological changes that people have put into place, you know, control flooding and stuff. I mean, hey, you're down there between uh, Mississippi and the Atchafalaya. It's, there's a lot of work that goes on in terms of infrastructure. And a lot of times when people think about how dams and things like that affect fishes, they think about migration. But you also mentioned that they need these floodplains to spawn. I was wondering if you could go into a little bit of the life history of gars and what they actually need to spawn. So, you know, a lot of times we think of these sort of longitudinal migrations, right? We think of salmon swimming upstream and getting to the spawning grounds. And some gar species do do something similar, like long-nosed gar populations in some areas do actually leave the larger mainstem river and will swim into tributaries, or they might leave a lake and then move up into a river to spawn. But further down south, different gar species, including the alligator gar, but also long-nosed gars, spotted gars, and short-nosed gars, they perform lateral migration. So when the water levels come up in the spring, they move out onto the floodplain. And so a lot of gar species or particular populations will take advantage of that mm -hmm. floodplain inundation. And when the floodplains are inundated, that allows fish to use additional habitat for spawning, for feeding, for nursery areas. And so when we modify rivers and sort of regulate them, you know, for different purposes, obviously we don't want, you know, we're people live, we don't want those areas to be flooded or anything like that. But in areas where we can kind of return the river or floodplains to a more natural type of uh, inundation, that's beneficial for fish. It's also beneficial for other vertebrates as well, other invertebrates too, um, such as water birds. And uh, so, yeah, the gars move up into the floodplain, they'll spawn in the vegetation. In uh, some areas, alligator gars actually uh, target uh, more terrestrial vegetation that is inundated for their spawning where they lay their eggs. And then the alligator gars, the adults will eventually move off the floodplain and back into the main stem river. So in some areas, alligator gars actually require floodplain inundation in order to successfully spawn. In other areas, coastal environments, they may not be as dependent on that. But I think that brings into question, it's really the population level that's important when we're thinking about conserving these species. Well, that's it for the first leg of our Louisiana spring break. Big thanks to our guests, Dr. Solomon David, who'll be back next week for a conversation about how to fish and prepare alligator gar. Meantime, we're going to go relax with some gumbo and a Sazerac while we take in the sights. 
Mm-mm. It to fay all day. <laughs> we'll see y'all on the boat next time. Thanks for listening to Fish of the Week. My name is Katrina Liebich, and my co-host is Guy Iro. Our production partner for this series is Citizen Racecar. The show is produced by David Hoffman, co-produced and story edited by Charlotte Moore. Post-production by Garrett Tiedemann. Publication facilitated by Kelsey Kors. Fish of the Week is a production of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, Alaska Region, Office of External Affairs. As the service reflects on 150 years of fisheries conservation, we honor, thank, and celebrate the whole community, individuals, tribes, the state of Alaska, our sister agencies, fish enthusiasts, scientists, and others who have elevated our understanding and love as people and professionals of all the fish. <laughs>